Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Well, hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country or actually around the world because we have an international listenership. But like you heard, this is Judge Jim Gray on we're here to discuss real issues. And if we do that and employ libertarian values, libertarian approaches, we will all rise together, which is, of course, the whole idea behind this. And we have really interesting guests as we confront issues, discuss them openly. One of our libertarian values is that we should be able to and do discuss really any We don't call each other names. We listen. Uh, Did you know, by the way, that the word silent and the word listen have exactly the same letters in them? Most people don't don't accomplish either of those, but uh, it's really an important thing to do to listen to some argument because you can't be against it, in my opinion, unless you can explain it, unless you know what it is, and you can't learn that without listening. Or, by the way, reading, because today's guest is Susan Shelley, S-H-E-L-L-E-Y, of the Southern California News Group, and she has been writing as an editorial uh, editorialist, syndicated in numbers of different periodicals, and she doesn't call it, she's, she's apolitical, because she doesn't even ever told me what her political uh, party is, but she writes in libertarian ways and manners and brings up numbers of things. So, Susan Shelley, welcome to All Rise, and please introduce yourself a little bit and tell us how you became an editorial writer for the Southern California News Group. Welcome. Thank you, Judge. It's a delight to be here. Well, I was uh, I was in politics, and I'll tell you that I'm a registered Republican, and I ran as a candidate uh, for the Assembly and did a little too well in a long-shot race, because I live in, in the Los Angeles area, and Republicans don't do too well in races around here, but I felt that this was this was shortly after the economic crash, and what triggered me into politics was the incredible leftward movement toward more and more government. And I just, I had a moment where I was watching the business news, and they did this casual tease as they went to commercial. It was something along the lines of, should we nationalize the auto industry? We'll be right back after this. Oh, 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 <laughs> I threw my hands in the air and I said, where is everybody? <laughs> I, I could not believe I was hearing this in the United uh, States of America. So I got active. Good and for first you. I volunteered. I, I volunteered for a congressional candidate. I ended up running for Congress in a long shot race myself just to make the argument that we had to go in a different direction. And that went a little too well, so that's when I ran for the assembly, and that went a little too well. And the next thing I knew, uh, I had all these people saying, I agree with you. And I went to the publisher of the Los Angeles Daily News, and and I said, this should be a weekly column with with ideas that people want to hear about issues. This is an underserved audience. So they agreed to give it a try. But, you know, their their point of view in the newspaper industry is generally a little bit more liberal, a little more big government oriented. And uh, I think some of the editors were very skeptical, but it became immediately successful because this is an underserved audience. People have libertarian beliefs, whether they know it or not, and, and they want more freedom. It's all about 
less government, more freedom. That's what people really want. So how did you end up channeling your thoughts in that direction? Because I agree with you, most people do, but but tell us how your thinking evolved then into that libertarian direction, Susan Shelley. I think it really was what I said before. It was the, the it was witnessing with my own eyes how fast it can go in the wrong direction. You have one economic crisis, hiccup, bump, whatever you want to call it, you have one situation that that seems to call out for action, and the next thing you know, they want to nationalize the auto industry. And I just, I, I became very interested in sort of in the Cold War era changes, which were going in the opposite direction from what we were doing in 2009, 2010. The Cold War era, you saw people tearing down the Berlin Wall and, and the joy on their faces and, and the Tiananmen Square protests and the fall of the Soviet Union, and the tearing down of all those statues in the communist era, which, by the way, now are in a museum in West Los Angeles, this struck me as something that needed to be given serious thought. What is it that makes people free? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that freedom is a condition that exists under a government of limited power. That's what it is. And unless you hold the limits on government power you will lose your freedom. And this is true of the surveillance state. This is true of the health care takeover. This is true of too much taxation. In every way, the more you let the government do, the less free you are. And if you let that get out of control, and it's always for good motives, there's always a good reason, if you let that get out of control, you lose your freedom. That's how it happens. Well, well, you certainly convinced me, Susan Shelley. But yeah. I'm, I'm going to call easy attention. <laughs> yeah, you're very persuasive. I'm going to call attention to our listeners. Uh, you wrote on the 1st of March in the Orange County Register 2020 uh, uh, editorial or, or editor op-ed piece called Jobs for Los Angeles Bureaucrats, but No Homes for the Homeless. And what you, you showed, which is just so remarkable, that, okay, our response is, of course, to spend lots of money. And so, yes, there are now a thousand, as you said, open positions for people to be employed in the homeless service delivery system of the Los Angeles area. So we're going to employ all of these people. Of course, that's not going to result in more more homes for the homeless. It's just going to have more bureaucracy. So you're going to have CEOs and executives and the rest. Uh, explain a little bit about how that came about with your supervisors, coordinators, program managers, directors. All these people are in charge of direct service, but that doesn't put any boots on the ground. That doesn't help our people. To fill, fill in that a little bit, that because I thought it was brilliant, Susan. Well, thank you. What happened here in Los Angeles is there were two taxes passed right after, right, one right after the other. Uh, the first one was uh, measure HHH, which was $1.2 billion in borrowed money to build homes for the homes, housing, apartments, supportive housing for the homeless, supposedly. There was a lot of fine print in the, in the measure if you read it. And the second one was a countywide sales tax increase for homeless services. And it was shady from the beginning. The county spent public money to campaign for it, which is not even legal. And they no. did commercials and advertising, and, and it was the big check mark and the, the date of the election and showing how they were going to be helping all these people on the street. Well, no one seemed to see what happened to the money. So I did a little bit of Googling around on the Internet, and I find this homeless services job fair listing on Eventbrite. 
It wasn't even from the from the county government. It was on Eventbrite. And it was, we have all this money from Measure H, the sales tax increase. We've got $355 million a year coming in for 10 years. And here are all the jobs we're going to have funded by Measure H. And they were all executive, supervisory, managerial. You had to go all the way to the bottom to see that they were hiring anyone who was going to be outreach. And they called those entry level. I don't even know what to make of that. It's, it's this giant bureaucracy inventing itself in front of our eyes to write reports about all the people in the tents. Well, what does that mean? It means that if the people in the tents go away, there's no job, so we can't have that. <laughs> of course. So what we have in Los Angeles is we have this permanent sort of homeless industrial complex of nonprofits and bureaucrats and people drawing six-figure salaries to uh, write reports, file notes keep track. And there are people in tents who are dying on the streets. And these, these cretins are, are taking taxpayer money and funneling it to each other while they watch this happen. And it's deplorable. Well, if you want to get even more discouraged, because that, that's such a brilliant example, and thanks for shining a light on it, but, but Susan Shelley, if you want to get even more discouraged, visit on Google the Plum Book like the, the fruit, the plum book, and that will give you a list of all of the political appointments that a president would make, and many of them have to be uh, agreed upon by the, by the Senate, ratified, but it shows all of them, it just goes on for legions of pages, and each one like pays $189,000 a year. I mean, you wonder why our taxes are so high, but also, uh, let, me, let me run something by you. And, and I, this is not a put-up job. Uh, I believe in Milton Friedman, who's one of my true heroes. But I wrote a, an article, actually, that was published in the Orange County Register, where you publish as well. And it said, as far as the homeless situation is, is concerned, it's an outrage for us morally as to who we are. But I'll tell you my political philosophy is that I could be bleeding on the street right here, and you would have no legal obligation to help me unless you cause my injuries. That would be different. But we will because we want to, because we are generous people. So what we should do is have an institutional response to homelessness. Again, this is Milton Friedman. He called it a negative income tax. I would call it a stipend. But let's say if no one, some people who are here legally, they're citizens, they're green cards, they make no money. And I don't care as long as they're an adult here legally. I don't care if they're lazy or they lost their job to a robot or they want to go back to school. I don't care. I would give them a stipend of, say, $15,000 a year, probably broken down into 12 monthly payments of $1,250 right to their ATM account. And if that were to happen and you were homeless, the private sector, in my view, would quickly rally to provide to those people because they had that regular source of income, you know, a modestly inexpensive room and board facility, and, and, the, and as long as that money would come out of their ATM account automatically every month, the, the institution would result. And, and that way we could address this instead of throwing these countless millions of dollars into this bureaucracy like, like you say. Uh, what do you think of that as a possibility, at least, Susan Shelley? Well, that would certainly work for some people. There are other people who are on the streets because they are Great. They have gravely disabling mental illness, or they have severe substance abuse problems, or both, and, and it doesn't work for them. What's happening for them right now is that something similar to what you're talking about, uh, SSI or SSDI, these are federal government payments, there are county payments, they do go 
into a, a debit card for people who are homeless. And guess where the money goes? It goes to some of these organizations that are supposedly caring for them because people can have an, a third party receive their benefits for them in order to uh, help them with their affairs, which on paper sounds okay, but it creates this this sort of cash flow. I heard one city official call it connecting people with their benefits. We have to get out <laughs> on the street and connect people with their benefits. Now, the really venal part of this is that if people go into a shelter, if they go into a care facility, the money goes to the care facility. It doesn't go to the individual. It doesn't go on the debit card. It goes to the, to the facility to pay the, the cost of care. So while they're in the tent, there's money. And if they go into the shelter, there isn't. Yeah. So I think you, you run into a problem when you have a stream of government funds that there's an opportunity for fraud and abuse that uh, has to be watched very, very closely. And, of course, that's true. And, and I went on in my article to say, uh, kind of in my own defense, that that there once you had those people, there were three types of people that you'd be addressing. The first, which is regretfully a smaller proportion, are those kind of just down on their luck. They just lost a job. They've been living in their car. They just need a little extra help, and they'll get back on their feet, to which we all say, of course, terrific. But then there's right. a large group of people that are drug-addicted, uh, mentally ill, so they should go through a triage, and if they need a conservatorship, then let's put them on a conservatorship. If they need uh, drug treatment, then let's do that as well and use these amounts of money for that. And it wouldn't just, I'd probably do away with all other welfare except for people with truly special needs like those. Then there's a third group who are in effect, just kind. we call them professionally homeless. They just kind of like to camp out. Although we had on All Rise on February 28 of 2020, a man named Paul Leon, who was really involved with the homeless issue. And I, I raised this with him. He said, well, really, it's, it's a misconception that they're professionally homeless. They like this. They're told by somebody in a shelter, oh, we have a shelter for you. You want to come right now? And the first question is, well, can I bring my dog? No. Well, can I bring my significant other? No. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to go then. So they count them as being professionally homeless when it simply isn't true. Or you go into a religious facility and you have to pray uh, you know, five times a day before you get any meals. So there are a lot of connections there. But you also wrote a column, Susan Shelley, that also caught my attention a few months ago. And it was about California Governor Newsom's plan to create yet more government agencies. You know, he sees these yeah. problems in the world. So the Department of Early Childhood Development, uh, an Office of Healthcare Affordability, a Department of Better Jobs and Higher Wages. I mean, it's exactly like you were discussing with the, the bureaucrats for the homeless. But is there any any movement in that direction? And uh, you really think anybody is going to to be able to decide that if we have a department of better jobs and higher wages, it will end up with anything on the ground other than a lot more bureaucrats making money? Well, I've been doing a little bit of research into this because it turns out that it's Orwellian language. When they say better uh, jobs and higher wages, what they mean is forced unionization. They want the government to coerce employers and employees into union contracts so that there can be dues paid out of everybody's paycheck to the union treasuries, which will then come back to the politicians as campaign donations. And uh -huh. that's what Assembly Bill 5 is about, which is essentially outlawed independent contractors in California. No more freelancing. 
We've got theaters and opera companies and all kinds of people saying, what, what? I voted for these people. What, what? <laughs> and freelancers is outlawed because you can't unionize freelancers. You can only unionize payroll employees, people on the, on the payroll. That's the only part of it that's legal is to, is, is, is to unionize people who are employees. Otherwise, you can't. So now you have to be an employee. You can't be a freelancer, and this is to enable union organizing. And that's what these three bureaucracies turn out to be. The Department of Better Jobs and Higher Wages sounds like it could be a, sort of a, an outreach for business to say, we want you to come to California and, and hire people and you know, establish your headquarters here. It's not that. It's about collecting data on how much money companies are making, who their workforce is, oh. and, and by collecting this data, they will be able to organize, sit across the table in collective bargaining and have more information and more power. And the reason I know this is because the Health Care Affordability Office is now embodied in language for a bill, and it's all about data reporting from the healthcare sector. They want the companies, the insurers, the providers to file regular mandatory reports with the state government on how many people they hire, how much they're paying them, what their revenues are, their financial condition, all this information that would be very useful if you were trying to organize the workforce of a, a health care provider. That's what it's about. It's another one of these government schemes to empower their political supporters. Oh, Susan, I'm sorry I asked the question. That was really <laughs> discouraging stuff. I was sorry, too. <laughs> oh, goodness sakes. <laughs> this is, yeah. it's, just, it's amazing. Well, I, I say that big government is really, really good and effective at one thing, and that is continuing to increase the size, the cost, the power of big government. That it just it perpetuates itself. And and like we say here, that, that if you were concerned about money in our elections, and, and we are and we should be concerned, because I said this recently, I think, on All Rise, that Ariana Huffington, one time after an election, was quoted as saying, really, we should do away with elections. We should just give the office to the person that raises the most money, which is, in effect, <laughs> almost what we're doing anyway. But, but it's just really something to see. And we libertarians are exactly the opposite. We want to reduce that. But if you want to get money out of government, you have to get government out of money because all the Republicans, Democrats, they have these cronies and that they will, like uh, you mentioned Assembly Bill 5 here in California, that is basically aimed at Uber and Lyft to, in effect, unionize them. But uh, I, am, as a private judge, really am an independent contractor. I, under Assembly Bill 5, would have to become an employee of my company, which I have no desire to be an employee. I just want to work when I have some work to do. But uh, they give lawyers an exemption, and they'll give other people that have political power exemptions. Well, then it just becomes a political game as to who gets the exemptions and who doesn't. But but that's what's happened with AB5, which is a disaster in so many ways, except for, like you say, the unions. Do I read it correctly? Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. It is designed to empower the unions and to make sure that people do not have the option of working independently and companies don't have the option of hiring independent contractors. It's taking away freedom in California. There's no yes. other way to look at it. And it's really harming people. It's harming yes, business it plans. It's harming harming people. Uh, so the economist Thomas Sowell, who was just a really guiding light from my standpoint as well, once time said, and I read this and I, I love it, the first law of economics is scarcity. 
That is to say, there's never enough goods and services to meet the demand. But the first law of politics is to ignore the first law of economics. I assume <laughs> that you agree with that. Oh, yes. <laughs> that is absolutely true and a brilliant observation. We, we, we need more lights to be shined on these things. And, and uh, here's one that's, that's totally off the wall from you that uh, I just recently submitted an article to Atlantic Monthly because I was on a national syndicated radio show a while ago talking about the uh, criminal justice system, mostly about drug, drug prohibition and how it isn't working. And after that, I received letters from 11 inmates from from prisons around the country. And so I kind of used them and harnessed that force and asked them, what is life like inside our prisons today? And they gave me some information and I've written about that. And some of them are just disastrous that we have people that were factually innocent are in prison. If one person factually innocent is in prison in our country today, it's too many. But, you know, there are, there are, 50, 100, 000, maybe 1,000. It's just a terrible thing. So I, and the reason I'm asking you this, how can we shine a light on what's going on in our prison system today? Because anyone held has to receive at least a minimum standard of safety and nutrition and welfare. And the only way we can do that from my standpoint is to have a neutral member of the media have total access within security reasons, total access to each prison. And the people in the prisons could tell their story. They could tell how they were put in solitary for whatever reason, or if they were attacked by, by someone in, with a shiv or a knife, all that sort of stuff. I would actually have a member of the media have total clear access to the prisons and then give the prison wardens an opportunity to rebut if they wanted to, but to, to be able to shine that light. Do you think that would be an effective way of telling people and, and reducing the harms that are going on in our prison system today, Susan Shelley, member of the media? Well, that's a big project, and it's beyond the powers of one person to do it. So it would have to be perhaps an entire news organization that could do it all across the country. You're talking yes. about county, state, and federal facilities. That is a big project, and, and it's very important. And I, I share your concern about people who are factually innocent, who are coerced into plea bargains, and, and who, are, who are in prison because of a wrongful eyewitness identification, or we, we know that the, the arson evidence and some of the scientific ballistics evidence that has been given, that's been shown to us as reliable, turned out to be wrong, and it's very disturbing. It should never happen, and we have to get it right. People who have committed crimes belong in incarceration in many cases, but it, we have to get it right, because if we don't get it right, then we don't have a justice system. We just have random, random incarceration and have that. Well, I would speak with prosecutors and tell them that they have an absolute obligation to do the right thing for the right reason every time. And yeah. so many prosecutors now have too much power with enhancements and, and three strikes and you're out and you know laws like that. But uh, I can also tell you, we'll change the subject back a little bit, uh, California in this coming November 2020 ballot is going to have a proposition on the, on the ballot for split roll, which means that the state's proposition 13, which keeps a, a handle on the on how much property taxes can increase, but it would separate and increase commercial property taxes, but purport at least for the moment to keep residential taxes alone. What is the thrust of that issue? And I assume it is going to be on the ballot. Oh, tell us a little bit more about this, Susan Shelley, before we recess for a short break. 
Well, this is a long-term project of the uh, tax-and-spend types of politicians and their special interest allies. They have wanted to destroy Proposition 13 since 1978 when it passed. And this is another try at splitting the property tax roll into sections and taxing commercial property differently than residential. And what it amounts to is a massive tax increase on every business in California simultaneously and repeatedly. And that is just going to drive businesses out of the state, and it's insanity to do it. It's insanity. It comes to us from the teachers' union and other allied groups. It is not coming from someone in the legislature. Nobody voted in the legislature to do this. They all support it on the left, but they do not, uh, they do not want to vote on it. So it's an initiative petition. It is headed for the November ballot, and if it passes, heaven forbid, Every business property in the state will be reassessed to market value, and the owner will owe 1% of the market value of the real estate, plus all the other school bonds and the rest. Um, But the basic property tax is 1% of the market value every year as a condition of keeping the property, because if you can't pay it, they'll sell it out from under you. And they'll move out of California. Uh, I I do mediations as a private uh, judge, and uh, so when I'm with any party, I will focus on their vulnerabilities. And when I talk Mm -hmm. with business people, I'll say, well, your your biggest vulnerability is you're doing business in California. And and it's just the the whole thing is weighted against you. You wonder why people are being pushed out of California. Oh, but don't worry, sport fans. It's only those businesses that are going to pay more taxes, not you, of course, on your residence. Well, so it's free. It, oh, oh, wait a minute. It's not free. If you push them out of California or somebody has to pay this, if you're charging the apartment owner, well, he's going to pass along those those increase in prices to the to the residents or your services, your goods are going to be more. So it's just it's just backward. And thank you for raising the flag with regard to that, because this is it's pernicious. So we're going to talk about educational choice when we come back. Susan Shelley is a champion of being able to get this word out and tell what school choice is. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that after these few messages. So please stay with us on All Rise because we will all rise together if we shine lights on what's going on in the world and use libertarian values, responsibility, choice, education, competition. My goodness, what a philosophy. We'll be back just after this. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. 
Together, we can move mountains. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. And you again heard our theme, Americans All, which came from my musical, which is meant to help mentor our junior high school, high school children. Uh, And if you're at all interested in putting on a really good show, it's been well-received, Americans All, uh, go to my website, judgejimgray.com. You can listen to some of the songs, see see the main version in action. And if you'd like to have it produced in your locality, just let me know, because I'll offer it to you for, for without anything. But but also, and my wife, uh, I keep blaming her for this, but it's true that she's asked if I would incorporate just a little bit of levity, uh, so-called, into my shows. And this is usually where I do it. So I can tell you that recently a priest, a minister, and a rabbit walked into a blood bank. And the rabbit said, I must be a typo. Takes a little subtlety, but uh, there you go. It should have been a rabbi, but it was a rabbit, so he was a typo. At any rate, that's I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, Susan, I love having you on for all kinds of reasons, but you laugh at my jokes too, so that that's even more ingratiating. But life is good, life is fun, and uh, and off we go. But as promised, I think that one of the major issues confronting our country today is the literal fact the abhorrent fact that too many schools are failing our children. And usually it's not in the more wealthy, higher economic areas because they have the power to either remove their children and send them to private school or they'll move into areas where they have good functioning schools. It's the lower economic areas, frequently, I'm sorry to say, of blacks and Hispanics where we have these schools that are failing our children. And if that happens, you're going to almost condemn them to a lifelong uh, situation that they'll never realize their true potential. And the, the education makes a huge difference. And all the studies show that if anyone at any level, economic, social, or otherwise, is exposed to quality education, they will thrive. They will, they will thrive together. But, but educational choice, Susan Shelley, again, of the Southern California News Group, a wonderful editorial writer, uh, shining lights on all kinds of things that we heard in the first segment. But let's talk a little bit about school school choice. Uh, what is it, and uh, and how is it going in California and elsewhere? Well, school choice is the idea that uh, the money that people are paying in taxes could go back to the families to buy the, the educational options for their kids that they choose, as opposed to having an assigned government-run school. And as we talked about earlier, this is very much about the unions. The opposition is coming from unions that want to keep everybody employed by a government agency, and then you have more dues being paid and more people in the pension fund and more control over the entire operation. But parents are not happy with that in many cases. And so in California, we have a charter school law where if people have a failing school in their area, they can form a charter school, and it is publicly funded, and it is independent from the 
disconnect from the government schools. It, ha- it can have its own curriculum. It can have. It doesn't have to have a union workforce. It, it can be run separately. Well, the charter schools have succeeded very well, and the, the district schools uh, sometimes lose students to the charter schools, which means they lose funding from the state, which means they are going to have fewer teachers, which means there's less revenue coming into the teachers' union, and so they have pulled out the stops to try to restrict charter schools in California. The teachers' union in in Los Angeles, UTLA, went on strike last year. One of their demands was to put more restrictions on how many charters there can be and, and who can decide. So when Gavin Newsom became governor, he signed a bill that does restrict that, and it creates an opportunity to consider the economic impact of creating a charter on the rest of the district schools. So it's a way of saying, we're running something that's completely incompetent, and if you compete with it successfully, that hurts us, so you can't do it. Well, it doesn't help the kids if that's the goal of the school district. If the goal of the school district is to keep incompetent people working and to hire more of them, that is not helpful to the kids. The the focus should be on the children. You have a situation there in which the supplier is making the decisions instead of the customer. So the exactly. supplier is the, the, the teachers and the administration, but they it's kind of like General Motors deciding which car you will buy, Susan Shelley, and, and it you know, that way you get away from competition. But the way I phrase this is who is in a better position to decide where and how your children should be educated? You as the parent or the the uh, the government and no one will say that the government's in a better position. That that Germany, for example, has a wonderful system of vocational training. Well, we can't do that in our state because the state mandates this, that, and the other thing. But the parents can see that. May I want my child to get some job skills. So so that's the deal, and it comes down to literally the idea of what is the purpose of our educational system to educate our children. My goodness, what a concept! Or to protect below average teachers and guess what we're doing today because in a school the charter school system where good good teachers will thrive that they will get paid more in relation to their their production it's just a way of keeping the present failing system still going uh, do you know other states as well because uh, we've had uh, people on All Rise before that were talking about this, and it's, it really seems to be taking off around the country. Are you aware of any product, productivity around the country, Susan Shelley? Well, I know that there's a movement to pass laws in state houses everywhere that will empower this. It's, it's always a question of the money and, and whether, whether you can persuade the state legislature to, to fund alternative types of schools, and there's a question of whether the money goes directly to the parents or it goes directly to the schools. But this is an important principle, that there should be school choice and that parents should be empowered to make the decisions for their kids, not the government making the decisions for their kids. The public schools have become so politicized. As everything in government, you have interest groups that go to the legislature or go to the school district and say, we think this should be on the curriculum. And... And you get that on the curriculum. They're having a huge fight in California about the ethnic studies curriculum. The first one that came out was so anti-American that there was an enormous protest across the whole state. You can't, you can't be teaching this to our kids. And you know, it had errors and bias and all kinds of problems against Western civilization. And, and this, is, this is not something that the taxpayers are interested in supporting. So at a certain point, no matter how much lobbying and how much campaign fundraising keeps these people in office, at a certain point, the voters can throw them out. 
and they crossed that point on that issue, and I think they could cross that point on school choice also if they stand in its way. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Back on August the 2nd of 2019, uh, we here on All Rise had an interview with Robert Enlow, who was the director of school choice or ed choice uh, around the country. And, and uh, if you're interested, go back on demand and get a little more information about this uh, August the 2nd of 2019. But Susan, also recently, and I've it's amazing. I never thought I would end up writing as much as I have. I've written uh, four books and two musicals, but along with, and you're probably familiar with these people, Cecilia Iglesias, who was on our All Rise on March 13 of 2020, as well as Jim Doty, who's just a hero, the, the uh, president emeritus of Chapman University, who was actually on All Rise on March 20 of, of 2020. But they co-authored an op-ed with me, and we called it an open letter to the ACLU, to the NAACP, and MALDEF, telling them it's their constituents, they're great groups, but their constituents are the ones whose schools are failing them, who are the lower economic people, uh, frequently minorities, people of color. Why are they not promoting school choice. And you'll you'll never believe this, but the LA Times was not at all interested in publishing this editorial. I've now submitted mm-hmm. it to the to the register and I haven't heard from them yet either, but uh, I why is it that you don't have the support of the ACLU for example, which does some really good work in, in a lot of ways, but it's their constituents that are being penalized by this present school failure system. Do you have any idea why? You know, I really don't. I think they have alliances for political purposes on many issues, and perhaps they don't want to cross someone who's in their coalition on something else. But it's it's not right. These are organizations that should be standing up for people, and they should be interested in the best interests of the kids, and they should be fighting for school choice or for better schools or for something that is genuinely helpful to the kids who need the help. because. That's the purpose of these organizations, is to protect the rights of people who can't fight for themselves. That's what they should be doing. Certainly so. Uh, we do have other groups like uh, IHS, Institute for Humane Studies, or, or the, those publicly oriented groups that, that file lawsuits for people. But we had in Orange County World Affairs Council one time a former ambassador, uh, John Negroponte, uh, and he was talking about, and he'd been up in the secretary in the Department of State as well. And he told us about a lot of things going on around the world today. And then he was asked the question, because we always make sure that people that come in and and address our group will submit themselves to questions. And he was asked, what is the biggest security threat to the United States of America today? And without biting an ally, batting an eyebrow, he said, it's the deficit. It's the deficit spending. How do you see that? And why are we, why are libertarians the only one that seem to be spreading the true alarm of the threat to our country and our children as to the, this terrible deficit spending, Susan Shelley? Why, why is this not drawing more attention? That's a very good question. Uh, when, when times are good and they're still borrowing money and they're still increasing spending, then times turn less good and you're in a hole. And that has happened in every government that I'm aware of, the state governments and the federal government. And it's happening in California right now. We have a record budget in California, $222 billion, the highest ever. And yet there are proposals to raise taxes here and there and everywhere because it's never enough. And they're starting new programs and new entitlements and it's never going to be enough. And then the stock market is volatile, 
And if it's down, we don't have capital gains revenue in California. We rely very much on that for the state budget. And when the market isn't doing well, people are not taking profits. That money doesn't come in. And then what do you do with all these entitlements? Well, then you have to raise taxes. And, and all of the pension obligations, the same thing. Instead of paying down those pension obligations, they're just leaving them for the future and starting new programs and hiring more people and more bureaucrats and raising taxes. And it has to stop. And it might stop. You know, the people of California just turned down an enormous school bond measure, $15 billion plus $11 billion in interest over 35 years, and they always pass. They always pass. For the first time in 26 years, a statewide education bond failed. And that is extremely significant. I think it might be a turning point, you know, a line in the sand that the the taxpayers of California say, when are you going to fix these problems? Enough with telling us that we have asbestos in the schools. $45 billion later, you still haven't fixed it. No more money. Yes. And and it simply is time. Uh, You also wrote a column that I'm looking at right now is March 8th of 2020, entitled California's Cap-and-Trade Legal Fight with the Feds. And you just went through and described this. Well, First of all, what is a cap-and-trade uh, program? And then uh, why are the Feds in California at odds with each other, Susan Shelley? Well, here's what's going on with that. Uh, when Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor of California, he signed a bill in 2006 called the Global Warming Solutions Act, which committed California to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions to 1990 levels and then below 1990 levels on a certain timetable. Now, how in the world do you do this? Well, we have a bunch of bureaucrats, unelected, unaccountable, appointed bureaucrats at the California Air Resources Board, and they were tasked with figuring out a way to enforce this. So this is what they came up with. They will put a hard limit on how much greenhouse gas California in total can emit Not that that matters, because the whole state is only 1% of global greenhouse gas emissions. The whole state, you could shut every engine, you could shoot every cow, it would make no difference. Nonetheless, we're going to go below 1990 levels, and this is how we're going to do it. We're going to set a hard limit, and then we're going to sell allowances to companies that want to emit greenhouse gases, and every year we'll have fewer allowances, and that's how we'll do it. So the cap-and-trade idea is that this is a so-called market-based system where you can buy the allowances or you can invest in new technology that will reduce your greenhouse gas emissions, or you can buy offsets from some farmer in another place who buys a methane digester, and so they're going to turn cow poop into energy, and then you can buy a credit from him because he's generating credits. Well, this is nonsense. This is a giant cash grab. So what's happening is, in order to try and spread this around so there's a bigger market for trading these allowances, California made an agreement with Ontario, Canada, and Quebec that they would all be in this cap-and-trade market together. And it's not a market. It's, it's, it's a protection racket. <laughs> they, have to pay these, they have to buy these allowances to get past these restrictions. It's exactly like a 1950s nightclub. So Ontario had an election, and the new government came in, and they said, what's this? We're not doing this. And they walked away from it. Well, I don't know. The world doesn't seem to have come to an end as a result of Ontario not buying allowances for greenhouse gas emissions. So now Quebec and California are in this agreement. The Trump administration is suing California over it. They said, California cannot be making cross-border treaties with other countries about anything. They can't do it. So 
This is one of the lawsuits that's going in the other direction. I think there are 63 lawsuits that California has filed against the Trump administration, and this is one that the Trump administration has filed against California. But for the consumers in this state, what you need to know about cap-and-trade is that this is a hidden tax on everything you buy. It has added maybe 25 cents, maybe 70 cents to the price of gasoline, depending on how much they're selling these things for, these allowances, it gets passed through in the prices. So it's in the price of gasoline. It's in the price of diesel fuel. It's in the price of electricity. It's in the price of natural gas. It's in the price of everything that is made or moved in the state of California, like food, for instance. You go to the supermarket, those chickens did not walk to the refrigerator case. They were transported in a truck. That truck uses diesel fuel. That diesel fuel is more expensive because of the cap-and-trade program. Now, what are they doing with the money? That's the interesting part of this. It's a giant slush fund. It's called the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. It is spent by the lawmakers in Sacramento, all this money that comes in from buying these allowances, and guess what they're spending it on? 25% of it is going to build the bullet train. I ask you. Should we be doing this? This is insane. You are paying more for everything to build the bullet train, which is going to go from Merced to Bakersfield, and that's an optimistic projection. It may not get that far. It may go from Shafter to Wasco. I don't know what the hurry is, but there's going to be a bullet train. Now they're talking about trying to keep the federal money. You talk about bureaucracies perpetuating themselves. That's what's going on. In order to keep the federal money, they are talking about meeting their obligation to build 119 miles of track, but they're not going to build it all in a row because they don't have all the land. So they're going to build a few miles here and a few miles there, and it's not going to connect to anything, but it will add up to 119 miles, and they think they can go to court and keep the federal money on that argument. I ask you, this is, why is this even legal? You know, I, I'm going to have you back again, Susan. I'm <laughs> chuckling while you're while you're talking and, and going through these things that that you're increasing my understanding of these. But you also have such a great way of phrasing it. You know, the protection racket, which is exactly what the cap and trade is a cash grab, of course. But the hidden tax, of course, the, it, it's guided, it's guised under something that that we can simply understand. Uh, and and of course, it's meant to pander to the voters, but it really is just a cash grab by by the legislature. So I have an idea. We've talked about a lot of things that are going wrong and uh, and various uh, resolutions. I think the resolution to these numbers of programs that are just out there and, and wrong is to have Susan Shelley work harder, that I think you should publish a lot more often so that we can get this information, because I, I just love what you do. But uh, well, thank you. In, in the meantime, uh, let's talk about back in the Constitution, they, they put in the Constitution that there'd be no barriers in trade among the states. And thank God for that, because you can imagine if North Carolina had been able to put a trade embargo or trade uh, taxes on goods from Virginia or from Maryland, uh, it would have really hindered our de economic development. And now it's easier really for California to trade with Japan or Liberia than it was for North Carolina to trade with Maryland, but but we have trade restrictions. Uh, what do you think about free trade? What do you think about tariffs, Susan Shelley, along the same lines? Well, this is a question of what you're changing from where you are. You know, we come to this, we don't come to it with a clean slate. So there are various trade agreements 
There are countries that are cheating on them. If you want to put tariffs in place as a negotiating tactic to try to get rid of somebody else's tariffs, maybe that's, in the long run, a smart move. I think it depends on the, on the, overall, the overall plan. The, the goal is free trade, but it's not, it's not a clean slate to start with. So how do you get to it? How do you get to fewer restrictions and more freedom? One of the things that has to happen and I hope, it, I hope it happens in our lifetime, is that these repressive governments have to fall and people have to be free. And they want to be free, and the only reason they're not free is because people keep shooting at them when they protest. They want to be free. And I hope that the policies of the United States government always fight toward that goal, always work toward making people free. Because we will be a peaceful world, we will be a prosperous world, when we are a free world. And I hope that the United States always fights for that because that makes people free and happy. Uh, I, I fully agree with that. And regardless of whether they're, you know, so-called communist or socialist or whatever, we should treat them by the way that they treat their own people. And if they give them their, their human rights and their freedoms and uh, uh, are working for their people, they should have the blessing of the United States of America. But if they are tyrannical, do uh, do bad things toward their people, you know, like like uh, or, well, a lot of places around the world, uh, including Saudi Arabia, for example, and they're our big friend. But but I, I think you're you're absolutely right with regard to that, and also with regard to trade. That uh, uh, President Trump was putting these various unilaterally putting trade tariffs on China or other places. I think that should be not done by the monarch. It should be done by Congress. It should be done by government. No one person in our country should have the ability to do that, to remove them or to institute them. But what he should do also, because I agree, Susan, with what you say, if you're going to threaten a trade barrier because trying to reduce the trade barriers of other countries, I think that's legitimate. But what you do is you, you tell people, you do it publicly, hey, China is cheating. They are requiring that we give our technology to them or they're pirating it from us in exchange for opening access to their markets. We should tell the world, hey, this is what China is doing. We don't want to put tariffs in place, but if they continue to do this, then we'll be forced to, you know, things like that. So people are aware of actually what's going on because no, no country in the world, no place in the world, according to Milton Friedman, has ever lifted itself up out of poverty except through a system of the free enterprise system and private property rights and we need to get back to that uh, you understand of course uh, Milton Friedman also said which would be a revolution in our country we should judge our programs by their success instead of their good intentions uh, do you think yeah. that that would make a difference if we were to utilize uh, that wisdom from Milton Friedman Susan absolutely absolutely because if you if you let people manipulate the voters by saying, oh, well, we're, we intend to make everything better in health care and we intend to make everything better for free college, and you have to judge them by the actual outcomes and not by the intention because otherwise you're just opening yourself to manipulation. Uh, and and it's, it's, a, it's a con game is what it is. It's a medicine show. This is going to cure everything, but it, but it isn't going to cure anything. It's probably going to make you sick, and you're going to be sorry that you spent all your money buying this stuff. So I, I think it, if, you judge, if you judge programs on the results and you look at it with, 
with a clear head and you, you look at the structure of how this is put together and whether it's enhancing the power of the government or it's enhancing freedom, that's the way to make a decision. I'd like to recommend a book from 1943 by Isabel Patterson called The God of the Machine, which is a wonderful study of this idea of how you set the structure to create freedom. And it's, mm. it, was, it was influential for me, and I think your listeners would find it really fascinating. The God of the Machine. The God of the Machine by whom? Isabel, Isabel Patterson, P-A-T-E-R-S-O-N, one T, P-A-T-E-R-S-O-N. Thank you. 19, 1943, excellent book. She's a libertarian writer. Hmm. Okay, well, we get back into judging our programs by their success and their instead of their good intentions. And the prime example of that, in my view, Susan Shelley, is the minimum wage, which is meant, of course, to, to help give people a living wage and the rest. But what it really does is puts people out of work or puts yeah. companies out of work. Uh, so if you were judging by their successor rent control, you go to the places that have rent control, their rents are out of control, that, that uh, the free market will, uh, will adjust if they're allowed to be free. But if you restrict their, their uh, uh, ability to earn a, a wage back on their uh, investments, uh, that, will, that will reduce it. So we're going to run out of time here, Susan. I will ask you back again. I, I, I put a title on every every one of these editions, and I think that what I'm going to call yours is Government's Medicine Show, quote-unquote. Oh, yeah. I like it. <laughs> you have me chuckling again. That was, that's just, it's wonderful because it brings things to a, to really a, a real point. Uh, are you optimistic about our country's future? Uh, where, where are we going to be five or ten years from now, Susan Shelley, in your view? I am, I am always optimistic about our future. This is a dynamic country filled with people who are looking for solutions to problems. And that's what capitalism gives you. It gives you solutions to problems and incentives to solve problems. And then you have fewer problems and a higher standard of living and more freedom. And we will always, we will always achieve it if we work toward it. Indeed so. I, I share that optimism. Susan Shelley, thank you for sharing your time with us, your brilliance. You're, you're, you're certainly able to put your finger on the pulse and, and be able to describe it beautifully. Uh, protection racket indeed. Cash grab medicine show. Uh, you're, just, you're just wonderful. But now I, I, I'm very serious in having you folks focus the light and shine a light on a lot of these things. Uh, get back to work. You need to double your output right away for the, for the help of us all. But thank you so much for being with us here on All Rise, where we, if we employ these thoughts by Susan Shelley and, and others like her, libertarians in thinking, uh, I, by the way, I'm going to vote for you for president. I think that you're exactly the right one to uh, lead our country back to where we, we really should be. In the meantime... We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, we will. But, but tune in again you can call up any of our editions online and on demand at the uh, variety channel of, of uh, the uh, the shows here and we're just able to to address discuss I've mentioned several of the past editions go and and look back at them because listen to them I think you'll be really pleased with what you've got so we'll talk again next week with another interesting guest hopefully as interesting as Susan Shelley because you've been magnificent here on all rise because we will we employ these values and approaches all rise together. So thank you for being with us. This is Judge Jim Gray signing off, as I always do, by saying, life is good.
Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my bonds that help us control. We are Americans all. Strengthen my bonds that help us control.